Hello, I'm Fanny Blanc. I'm a policy officer at the London School of Economics. I work on housing policy in London. And this is Progressing Planning, a podcast series on the role of planning in fostering change in contemporary society. Today, I'm joined with Melissa Weimeyer, who is a PhD candidate in regional and urban planning studies at the LSE. Melissa has been working on issues of migration and displacement in the legal, policy and humanitarian sectors since 2010. She's most recently worked at the Joint IDP Profiling Service in Geneva. Her PhD project studies how local governments respond to situations of urban displacement, especially internal displacement. Hello Melissa, thank you for joining us today. Sure, thanks very much for having me, Fanny. So you've worked a lot before you joined um, this institution. You've worked on internally displaced people. And I was wondering, what was the difference between internally displaced people and refugees? Could you explain a bit what what differs between these two groups? Mm. Yeah, so that's a really good question. Generally, people hear a lot more about refugees in the public discourse than they do about internally displaced people, and so might not know uh, some of the differences. You could say, on the one hand, that that's actually quite surprising because there's around twice as many people internally displaced globally as there are refugees. Um, So, for example, according to the UN um, High Commissioner for Refugees' latest figures, there's around 50 million people internally displaced compared to between 27 and 30 million refugees. Um, but I have noticed that the, the discourse is changing a bit with the reporting on Ukraine, um, as it's very clear that with Russia's invasion, it's causing both refugee flows and high levels of internal displacement. So I'm hearing people starting to understand um, more the internally displaced side. So what it is really is people that have been forced to flee, but they have not crossed an international border. So internally displaced people are looking for safety within their country of origin. Refugees have also been forced to flee, but um, they have actually crossed an international border. Um, That said, both of these groups tend to need similar things just after they've been displaced. So in the short term, they generally need a safe place to stay, um, basic necessities like food and clothes, um, and they often have other kinds of needs like um, health and psychological support because of the trauma of what they just faced. Um, And in the long term, they need more stable housing, of course, Um, some way to regain the assets that they lost or that they had to leave behind when they were displaced. That could be a business or property. And they need support to integrate to their new place, like connections to jobs, getting their kids into schools, all those things that people need to to rebuild their lives. Um, So that's really similar between both groups. But because one has crossed an international border, and the other group hasn't, there is a key difference in who is responsible for helping get them back on their feet. And so people that are internally displaced are looking to get those services and help from their own government, which is very difficult if that government is struggling with, say, a civil war 
like in the case of Colombia for many years, um, or if they need help from that same government that actually caused their displacement, like in the case of people fleeing the Assad regime in Syria. Um, by contrast, if you cross an international border and become a refugee, you are seeking protection from the government that's hosting you, as well as the international community. And that government hosting you tends to be bound by treaty law, so the 1951 Refugee Convention, to provide that assistance and protection. Whereas people internally displaced don't have that same kind of global treaty um, that can compel governments to provide that support and protection. Um, there are guiding principles that are based on human rights law um, that should give uh, governments um, reason enough to provide that support to their own citizens to help restore their rights after they've been displaced. But um, we do see in different conflict contexts that that doesn't always happen. Um, so that means that uh, they might not get that support or protection. Um, and humanitarian actors and international legal bodies don't have as clear of a mandate to protect and assist internally displaced people um, as they need to actually wait for permission from that home government to intervene, which again is a major hurdle where it's that government that's violating the rights of its own citizens. Um, I can talk a little bit about why um, it's interesting but also difficult to study internal displacement, if that's something That'd be so interesting, yes, please. Um, so given the scale and all these added complications, um, I think you can see why it's both really important, urgent, and also incredibly interesting um, to study people that have been internally displaced and responses for those people. But it is actually not that easy to do. Um, so first, it's not easy to do conceptually because academics don't always agree on the need for a category of internal displaced people. Um, this is because it creates a subset of citizens that are thought to be marginalized in a different way than the urban poor. Um, so some argue that you don't want to think about people internally displaced as being more vulnerable than the general urban poor population of a city. Um, I disagree with that position somewhat, um, and that is a debate that is uh, going on among academics. Um, second, people can be internally displaced because of a wide variety of causes and triggers. Um, so some academic disciplines focus on internally displaced people focus, uh, displaced by a specific cause. So for example, urban geographers talk a lot about people displaced by gentrification or urban development projects and study less those that have been displaced by a large-scale conflict. That tends to be more security or humanitarian studies people. And so that means the connections between disciplines aren't really happening. Um, and we can't necessarily theorize about displacement in general if we don't make those connections. Um, third, there's lots of political issues with studying internal displacement. So it's sometimes difficult to collaborate with governments to even talk about internal displacement, to even bring up the concept, because they can see it almost as a weakness or an admission 
um, of their own inability to protect their own citizens. Um, so this is something that came up a lot when I was working in places where displacement is mostly caused by gang violence, like in, um, in cities in Central America. So government w um, tended to be very hesitant to even talk about it or collect information about it. Um, and finally, it's actually quite difficult to study for institutional reasons because there tends to be far less research funding available to study internal displacement compared to refugees. Um, there's currently also no academic institutes or centers dedicated to internal displacement um, compared to many that are focused on refugee studies. For years, the Brookings Institute led some really important projects in this area, um, including actually a collaboration with LSE um, when the LSE law professor Chaloka Bayani was the special rapporteur for the human rights of IDPs. Um, that work by the Brookings Institute has since closed. There are some new networks emerging that are looking to fill this gap. We have a platform called researchinginternaldisplacement.org that features working papers that people can submit to as well as blogs. Um, and I manage a Twitter account for that platform, um, which is rid underscore networks where scholars can network, share work, and actually um, debate some provocative questions on internal displacement. So it's actually been quite a productive space to um, bring new voices to that discussion. Um, yeah, that, that's so interesting and so complex. Um, you, you've told me that your research is for your PhD is specifically on the relationship cities have with displacement. Um, could you because we're a podcast on, on urban planning and the role of the city in, in all the inequalities and how cities cope with inequalities. Could, could you tell a bit more um, what is the role of cities com compared to uh, the role maybe of uh, the country and the government uh, in this national and international phenomena? Mm, yeah, so one of the reasons that I'm doing a PhD in regional and urban planning studies is exactly because I want to make some of those connections between urban planning and those that are studying displacement, maybe from a more international perspective. Um, so I think it is really important to have this conversation. Um, so first, I think it's useful to explain what we mean when we say that displacement is increasingly urban, because we're starting to hear that in some um, academic conversations. What I mean by that is in line with global trends towards urbanization, displaced people are increasingly seeking refuge in cities. Why are they doing that? It's actually um, pretty clear and, and pretty obvious. So um, that's where they're more likely to find jobs and services that they need that's where they might be able to reunite with their social and family networks. Um, but there's also a significant dimension of people being displaced from cities um, as cities become the sites of conflict and war, such as in the case of the bombing of Aleppo, the siege of Homs. Um, so cities are becoming a site that is producing displacement as well as um, providing refuge to displaced people. Um, there's also intra-urban displacement. So 
you can be displaced from one part of the city and you actually aren't going that far away. You're going to another part of the city that you deem to be safer, we hope. Um, so that's something that is happening quite a bit um, in the case of being people being targeted by violence in certain Central American cities. So really just going from one side of the city to another where they can feel safer from the people that are perpetrating that violence. Um, also, whether you're from an urban or a rural area when you were displaced makes a difference in your outcomes where you're seeking refuge. So in other words, how easily you can adapt to your place of refuge. In the case of Ukraine, for example, uh, the majority of people that were displaced internally um, from the first Rus Russian invasion in 2014 were from the cities of Lugansk and Donetsk. And these are pretty big cities. Um, Donetsk has around, had around 2 million people um, before that time. And because people wanted to stay generally in the same province, um, they were a relatively urban group of people internally displaced, leaving the city of Donetsk. Um, and they were going to smaller settlements um, in the outskirts. So those tended to be more agricultural towns. And that created a major skills mismatch between the very urban displaced population that was arriving and the kinds of jobs that they could find in those areas. Um, so that's just one of the reasons why it's important to consider the urban dimensions of one, the causes of displacement, two, the displaced populations themselves, and three, the places where they're seeking refuge. Um, I can mention something about how city stakeholders are kind of changing the game right now. What did it change for local governments and local stakeholders and how did they adapt to all these displacements. Mm, yeah, so um, you're right to say that um, there tended to be a lot more focus on the national level and the international level when we talk about displacement, especially large-scale displacement um, caused by war. Um, but um, city and local governments are becoming much bigger actors in these discussions. So they used to be in the background um, and national level actors were making all the decisions, but this is actually rapidly changing as cities speak up about being on what they often refer to as the front line of responses. So they have to deal with the massive and immediate practical challenges of displacement, and they often have very little additional funding to do that. Um, so that's causing a real problem in their budgets. Um, they're increasingly taking on a diplomacy role um, to push for better funded and better governed national responses to migration and displacement. And sometimes they're even trying to advocate against the very restrictive national level policies that cause more problems on the ground than they solve. Um, and this is not just happening in migration and displacement. So this has been happening for climate change uh, policies through a network called C40 Cities. There's now strong parallel networks of mayors that are pushing for cities to be considered more strongly within migration policies. Um, so one of these networks is called the Mayor's Migration Council. And one of the big issues they're fighting for is for there to be ways to fund city governments directly for setting up responses to migration and displacement, rather than having to wait for national governments to 
make the decisions, set the policies, transfer the funds to the municipal level, um, or to have international agencies kind of do the response bypassing cities altogether, which really does undermine the legitimacy of city and local governments in the process. And so the Mayor's Migration Council set up a fund called the Global Cities Fund to do this. And they're now supporting nine cities, benefiting around 8,000 migrants, IDPs, and refugees. Um, IDPs are internally displaced people. Um, so that's still a relatively small scale, but growing, which is really an interesting phenomena itself to study. Um, in the past few years, I also worked with a network of humanitarian development and local government actors called the Global Alliance for Urban Crises that was trying to create more conversations between different constituencies on how to improve humanitarian responses in cities. There's really a growing recognition that humanitarian actors, when they are operating in cities, they are not really doing that as well as they could. They're not tailoring it to the reality of cities. They're not fully understanding the way cities are set up really as a system um, uh, or a network of systems with various actors that need to be involved. Um, so it means you have to collaborate across sectors, you have to put local government at the helm of, of any operation, and you have to improve the situation not just for those displaced, but for the urban residents as a whole. Um, and this is something that came up a lot actually in the recent um, World Urban Forum. This was convened uh, by UN Habitat in Katowice in June of this year um, to share good practice on this. And actually, there were quite a lot of events that were focused on how to improve uh, humanitarian responses in cities. Um, and 11 of these events were actually focused on Ukraine. So really interesting conversations happening there. Great. Um so you mentioned the fact that you studied internally displaced people in the context of Ukraine and you also talked about the difficulty in, in processing and collecting data uh, in, in the context of internally displaced people. Um, was it different when you worked on Ukraine specifically and uh, what kind of difficulties did you encounter when you had to collect information uh, about this country. I think you told me you studied uh, Ukraine before the current conflict. Uh, so I was wondering if you could say a bit about that. Mm. Yeah, um, I think it is really important to remind people that Ukraine has been facing internal displacement almost for a decade now. So since 2014, um, when the Russian-backed separatists first took over part of the Donbass region in the east and when Russia was invaded and then later annexed Crimea in the south. Um, so I have been looking into the situation of internal displacement in Ukraine since um, roughly uh, 2018 when I started working there. Um, the scale of internal displacement was already very high because of this 2014 invasion. Um, the government registry of people internally displaced. This is a registry that's maintained by their Ministry of Social Policy. They listed around uh, 1.5 million people um, internally displaced at the highest point. So that is still a very large number. 
Um, we have to keep it in context because now uh, we're recording well over 7 million of people internally displaced um, with around 6 million people who have left the country as refugees. So yes, it wasn't as big of a scale as it is now, but um, it was still a major issue um, that the country was facing and disrupted people's lives in a, in a huge way. Um, and because of that experience, Ukraine has learned a lot about how to respond. So I was working at an organization called the Joint IDP Profiling Service. Um, it's an interagency project based in Geneva that brings together governments, humanitarian and development partners to collect information on internal displacement. Um, we were supporting local partners in the area around Severodonetsk, which is in the Lugansk Oblast, um, and we conducted a large-scale household survey to try to understand the challenges that people internally displaced were facing there. This was actually a really important project um, because there was very little information about the people internally displaced um, in urban areas in Ukraine at that time. Um, so the humanitarian uh, organizations were really focused on providing services um, at what they called the contact line, which was the, the line that was separating the separatist-controlled regions with the regions that the Ukrainian government held. Um, and because of that, that's where they were collecting information and beyond 25 kilometers from the contact line, really there was very little known about what was going on. Um, and that was difficult for local governments to plan. So it was a really fascinating experience. Um, when we were supporting local partners, um, one of the really striking elements of that is that most of the partners were themselves um, displaced. So they really, had a very detailed understanding of how displacement affects people's lives, both in the short and the long term. Um, so the people that had been working in the, um, the regional state authority, as well as the local state authorities um, that had had to flee when the separatists came, um, set up their government in Severodonetsk. That's why there was such a high proportion of IDPs working in the public sector. Um, so the Norwegian Refugee Council was implementing the project with funding from the EU. Um, together we held workshops with local partners to contextualize the questions of the household survey um, to the really unique elements of that context, such as the elderly demographic profile of the population, which is not something that I had seen in other displacement contexts, and also frequent movement um, across the contact line, so people were say, living in Severodonetsk, but then traveling back to the separatist-controlled region to check on their homes that they had to leave behind, make sure they were still okay, hadn't been bombed, and then would return to Severodonetsk, where they were maybe more likely to find work. Um, so those were some of the dynamics that were going on that we had to adapt to for the household survey. We did face some big methodological challenges um, so the first being that there was no reliable full population register that could help us draw a representative sample of the displaced population. Um, and that's because the official registry of IDPs was expected to be out of date. Um, 
it both overcounted and undercounted. So it overcounted some IDPs because um, people were actually, some, some IDPs were still living in the separatist regions, but were traveling back and forth. Um, it undercounted IDPs because it was really a self-reported registry. So some people preferred not to be counted as an IDP. So that means you still can't get a full picture of the phenomenon. Um, we were able to overcome that by working in collaboration with uh, universities in Kiev, um, especially their Department for Social and Demographic Statistics. Um, and it gave us a good enough results to give a representative situation of the IDPs in those areas. We couldn't really give an official figure, um, but given the parameters, um, that was just uh, not something that we expected to be able to do. Um, so that process really helped us uncover some of the challenges that IDPs were facing. We saw there was, for example, a discrepancy in home ownership, as you'd expect, with fewer IDPs owning properties, there were high levels of locals that were hosting IDPs, which could be really hard for, for families economically to manage. Um, but there was something quite surprising that came out, and it was the fact that the challenges were being um, experienced the most by the working age IDP population in those areas. So before that, there was the expectation that it was the elderly population that was really struggling and that were the quote-unquote most vulnerable, um, but that's not what we found. We found that uh, working age population were struggling to find jobs, were struggling to integrate, um, and there hadn't been much focus on that group before. So that information helped the local government uh, raise the case for targeted um, policies for that group. Um, so that was especially useful to them because they um, wanted to give that group incentives to stay rather than to say move on to Kiev or other locations um, so that they could uh, bring keep their skills in the area, keep that human capacity there, um, and also contribute back through local revenues so that the local government could then help support pensioners and other vulnerable groups. Um, so it did end up providing some really useful rich information that could be used for for policy planning in that area. We had hoped to um, recreate that same project in the Donetsk Oblast um, in uh, 2021, so end of last year, early this year, and we had been halfway through um, implementing the household survey. Uh, we did not expect uh, the Russian invasion at the time that it came, um, and also at the scale that it came, so obviously that completely disrupted the project um, and the Norwegian Refugee Council had to prioritize humanitarian operations, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so it's not clear to me uh, what, what we can do as, say, an external researcher um, trying to understand the situation of the people internally displaced when there's such a live conflict that is causing rapid movement and that is making it very uh, difficult for um, local governments and humanitarian organizations to prioritize the kind of fine-grained data collection that you might need to get a robust understanding of what's going on. Um, I do expect that a lot of the people we did survey are probably 
since displaced again, um, as well as a lot of the local population that has also been displaced. And is it possible to collect like any data on uh, displacement in this current context of, of, of the war? Uh, what kind of information are researchers able to collect um, in terms of uh, displaced population and, and mm -hmm. um, maybe the movement of population from an area to the other uh, from uh, uh, Ukraine to in an international uh, territory? Mm, yeah, so there is actually um, a lot of research happening on uh, the experience of Ukrainians in other European cities, so refugees that have left Ukraine. Um, there are, there is information available on the IDP movements within Ukraine. Um, the International Organization for Migration has um, been implementing a large-scale household survey uh, since the 2014 um, invasion, really, um, called the Displacement Tracking Matrix. And that um, provides information at the oblast level um, and nationally about um, where people are moving to and roughly how many people internally displaced there are. So that's still happening, and, and they've been rolling that out um, since the latest invasion. Um, and scaling it up because there's uh, um, roughly seven times as many people internally displaced now than there was. Um, there's also uh, a large-scale survey that was conducted by the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center um, with an implementing partner called RIWI, so they're a survey company, and that uh, is of around 7,000 IDP households. Um, so people displaced within Ukraine, that can actually be used for academic research um, and they have said that they're contactable um, to share their findings. Um, so that is good to see that there's some, some sharing of data going on. Um, one of the useful findings that their survey has shown is that the majority of displaced respondents um, really plan to stay in Ukraine. Um, so that counters the assumption that people would prefer to cross an international border and become a refugee. Actually, the reality is most people would prefer to stay in their own country so they can return to their place of origin as soon as it's safe to do so. For those that do cross an international border, there is a variety of government schemes in countries across Europe. In the United Kingdom, we have a scheme called the Homes for Ukraine program. And my research actually focuses now on the London context and how local governments here, so the borough councils, have been managing, yes, the Homes for Ukraine program, but also the other displacement responses that they have alongside that. One of the biggest being the response for the people that were evacuated from Afghanistan in August of 2021 and the response to people seeking asylum um, that are housed in increasingly in hotels in the city. Would you be able to explain the difference between uh, refugees and as asylum seekers? Mm, yeah, so that's... Uh, an important distinction. Um, 
recognizing that both of those groups could very well be fleeing the same thing. Um, so they might both even be fleeing the same exact conflict. Um, a refugee is someone who has been officially given refugee status, while a, an asylum seeker, or I prefer to use the term a person who is seeking asylum, um, is someone who has filed their claim to fulfill refugee status or the, the reasons that one would give refugee status, but they haven't yet been granted that status. So in a way, they're in a situation of limbo while the government reviews their claim and makes a determination on their claim. So you've described the situation for people arriving as refugees under one of the government schemes. Uh, what is the situation for people seeking asylum in London? That's a good question because, again, there is sometimes some confusion between the situation for refugees and those seeking asylum. Um, there has been a lot of attention in the media on people that have been coming across the English Channel in small boats. And in fact, there has been a substantial increase in the number of people coming over the course of this year. Um, those tend to be people who come to the United Kingdom and then file a claim. So they would fall under the category of people seeking asylum. And it's not the case that they benefit from a government scheme per se, or one of their refugee resettlement schemes, they do get support, but very limited support. Um, and they fall under a separate system that is fully managed by the Home Office. In other words, local authorities don't really have a role um, in managing the system for people seeking asylum. So the kind of support they get is roughly 40 pounds a week for basic necessities. Um, they do get housing, but again, um, this is housing that is managed by or funded by the Home Office. So that creates a series of challenges for local authorities because those people are still housed within specific local authorities and they're also being housed increasingly in hotels. The reason for that is because of a significant backlog in processing cases of people seeking asylum uh, as a result of COVID and as a result of increased arrivals. So you have sometimes within the same local authority, and this is happening in London, um, Afghans who were evacuated, who are living in these so-called bridging hotels, other hotels that have people seeking asylum local authorities may not be aware of the people in those hotels because they're being managed by the home office and not just by the home office but by contractors um, <clears throat> that are doing all of the housing procurement for the home office in london that contractor is called clear springs ready homes so you have a private contractor managing hotels for people seeking asylum. Um, and then in the same borough, you might have a, a bridging hotel for Afghans. This has led a lot of local authorities in London to raise the question of, wait a second, we're really concerned about the situation for these Afghans living in hotels, but we also have all these people seeking asylum living in 
hotels, sometimes in similar conditions, sometimes in worse conditions, in our borough. And it seems like there's not a whole lot we can do about it. So um, local authorities in some cases have found ways to try to provide some support to those, um, those people seeking asylum in hotels. They call it wraparound support. So that might be helping those people sign up with a GP, um, helping to make sure that children of those families are given school places um, within a close enough distance that's convenient for them. Um, local authorities are really concerned with a few things. They're concerned with the quality of that hotel housing. They're concerned with the quality of housing once people are moved out of those hotels into what we call dispersed accommodation. So still managed by this private contractor, Clear Springs Ready Homes. Um, but local authorities want to make sure that those, the conditions in that housing is up to a reasonable standard that people can feel safe there. Um, there have been some questions about um, poor conditions of housing. They're also concerned with preventing child poverty. That's really a statutory obligation for local authorities. Um, and they want to make sure that they can intervene before um, these issues become crises. So um, given all that, there are there is a case to be made for local authorities to potentially have a more proactive role in supporting people seeking asylum that are in their borough, either housed in, ho in these contingency hotels or um, moved into this dispersed accommodation. And there's a really interesting book that came out this year by Jonathan Darling called Systems of Suffering, Dispersal, and the Denial of Asylum. And he outlines the history of um, how asylum seekers have been housed in the UK and how that has led to, at first, a, an important role for local authorities, then a withdrawal of local authority support as the funding was shifted over to these private contractors, um, and that that has left us in a bit of a gap of capacity to be able to deal with some of the challenges that local authorities are facing today. So in my research now, my next step in my PhD is to um, speak with borough councils in London to better understand how they're coping with these gaps in capacity and to find out what ways they are able to provide these kinds of wraparound services to people seeking asylum. Thank you, Melissa, for all your super interesting answers. Um, as usual, I, I always ask at the end of podcasts, is, is there anything else you'd like to say or um, comment on? Um, Thank you very much, Fanny, for the opportunity to speak with you about this research, especially to an audience that spends a lot of time thinking about housing policy, which I think are really central to how local governments do respond to displacement and even opening up maybe potential for how they can better respond to displacement in the future. I just want to end by saying we should center any research on displacement on the experience of those people that are navigating the system. Oftentimes, after going through incredibly traumatic experiences, 
they are subject to the quite dehumanizing process of being categorized and um, put in different places or put in different housing without having any choice in where they're going and how they're being treated. And so that is at the forefront of my mind when I'm speaking even with borough councils about responses. And I very much appreciate the time that I've had to get to know some of the people in London that are going through this process along the way. Thank you for listening to this episode and thanks to Melissa for talking to us today. For more information, you can visit our blog at this address www.blog.lse.ac.uk slash progressing planning. Next episode, we'll be talking with Mara Ferreri, who is an urban and cultural geographer. Thank you and see you soon.